Hi there. Welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. I'm Joe Wolfon, and I'm currently being laughed at in studio by my co-host Joseph Cacharo. What's going on? What's with hi there? What happened to what up? Honestly, so what happened was like I've been listening to Howard Beck's podcast, a full forty-eight. I just started listening to it, and and I realized that he does the same intro, like the what um, up. And I feel like he's kind of earned it with you know the whole what up Beck situation. And so you're I gonna you're gonna try for the high there wolf one. I just think maybe I'll like do something different every time. So I just like sticking to my standard welcome. Yeah, Sean, that's fine. Um, the one you call Sean Connery. Uh, yeah. Welcome to The Rock, you know. It's a great line and a great movie. Um, but yeah, I don't know if I'm going to do the what up anymore because I don't want to step on Beck's toes. And uh, I feel like he, he can legitimately... Everyone's trademarking their catchphrases these days. Did you see Kawhi wants to trademark what it do, baby? I did. So, in the spirit of... Kylie Jenner wanted to trademark Rise and Shine. <laughs> what? That's a true story. <laughs> oh, man. Um, this generation's out of control, I tell you. <laughs> What are we here to talk about? Uh, NBA basketball. Where are we getting this season? Man, um, I feel like we might have to start doing this more than once a week because I, I feel like we are so behind and we have missed so much having not potted for a week. Like, last time we talked, we were speculating about whether Buddy Hield was going to get an extension, and it just feels like the whole landscape of the league has tilted since then. Like, yeah, since then he's gotten an extension and the Kings have revealed themselves as trash again. <laughs> A lot's happened in a week. Yeah. Um, life comes at you fast in the NBA, as we always say. And um, a week into the season, what else happened? I mean, the, a ton of extensions came down after we did that pod, uh, including Jalen Brown extending for four years and over $100 million. I saw a lot of variance in, yeah. in the actual number value there, and I think there are some bonuses baked in, and maybe that's why. Um, but uh, there was that extension, the Sabonis extension, uh, obviously the healed extension. We're... Were there any one of those that stuck out to you as being particularly egregious? Whether I mean, uh, the DeJounte Murray one is maybe one that I felt like was a pretty big bargain. The DeJounte Murray one was a steal. As um, long as he stays healthy, that is an absolute steal in the current market. Yeah. And he's looked terrific, too, yeah. through their first three games, which uh, they're 3-0. and And I felt like, I mean, I picked the Spurs to make the playoffs as an eight seed, uh, but I was kind of always hedging and saying that I thought they had a chance to be pretty damn good if Murray popped the way that the Spurs seem to expect him to last year. And it really seems like that's happening. I mean, we haven't seen much of the three-point shot, but his offensive game certainly does look a lot more well-rounded. Uh, he's still able, I think, to knock down that jumper in the mid-range, able to get to the basket. And obviously, defensively, he looks like every bit the player, I think, that he was when he made all defense in his second season in the league. So... Uh, I think there's a lot to be excited about there, despite the fact, uh, and this is something we can get into also, but like the Spurs are still not shooting a ton of threes, and they somehow have the second best offensive rating in the league. And um, I don't know, I, I'm starting to think that maybe, and I'm guilty of this as much as anybody, but I feel like we, we have gotten into this mindset where we are equating three-point shots with like good offense or good offensive process. And I think sometimes we maybe lose sight of context when we we talk about things that way. And like, if you look at the way, I know it's you know, for most teams, I think they've played three games. Some teams have maybe played four, but offense is down across the league uh, pretty dramatically. And, and you can maybe chalk that up to just guys shaking off some rust as the season gets started. But I don't remember that being the case even in the first week of the season last year. I think the offense was pretty much up across the board right off the bat last year. And I'm wondering if defenses aren't maybe wising up to the homogeneity, the what what is it? Homogeneity in in NBA offenses and the fact that teams are just specifically hunting paint shots and three-pointers and if maybe there isn't some inefficiency there that a defense can exploit where they are staying home on those shots and you know, a team like the Spurs is maybe built to exploit the in-between spaces that teams are readily giving up might have some element of an advantage. Yeah, I think if, you, if you're if you not a great three-point shooting team, to have a sustainable offense, you need to have a smart players, smart coaching. You need probably the rare type of players who can 
give you above average efficiency in the mid range and in DeMar DeRozan and Lamarcus Aldridge, the Spurs have that. You need to move the ball around. You need to like move off. The, like you, you almost kind of have to play a perfect offensive game outside of your three point shooting. And I think the Spurs have that combination. So like, I don't think they're going to stay top five in offense all year, but I think they'll, they can be an above average offensive team despite their shooting limitations. You they mentioned were, they were six last year. So it's certainly yeah, not wow. out of the realm of possibility. Well, and they were also by percentage, I think, the number one shooting three-point team last year. Number it's one three-point shooting team, I think number one mid-range shooting right, but team, they were number, number one in free throws. They were number 30, I believe, in attempts in, from three-point range, right? They were very yeah. selective, which is the smart way to play it when you don't have and they were a ton close, of three-point And they were shooting. close to the bottom of the league in restricted area attempts right. as well. Like, they really were shooting a ton of mid-range numbers. They have numbers, a completely but. inverted modern offense. Yeah, but uh, I mean, it's, somehow they make it work, and I, I'm, I'm curious to see what that team looks like going forward. Just, so, yeah, go ahead. You were mentioning how offense is actually down to start the year. One thing I think is interesting on the defensive end, if you look at the teams that are already at the top of the rankings in terms of defensive rating, defensive efficiency, it makes sense. And it's actually pretty interesting that it's almost regulated this quickly. You've got Utah, always near the top of the league with Gobert. Orlando, all their length, they should be good defensively. The Raptors, who that roster defensively should be elite. And then Philly, who we both said can probably finish with the number one defense in the league. So, like, the top four makes sense. But yeah. there's like, one I wouldn't be stunned if that was the top four by right. season's But end. there's one team I haven't mentioned. And it's a team that I think everyone expected to be an elite defensive team because they've got Kawhi Leonard and Patrick Beverly. And they don't have Paul George yet, so, like, fair enough. But they're 26th. And defensive efficiency. And again, obviously, everything we say today comes with the caveat that we're a week into the yeah. season. But I do think it's interesting that, for the most part, the teams we thought would be elite defensively look elite defensively. And then the Clippers, sure, they don't have Paul George yet. They don't just look like not as good as we thought defensively. They've looked pretty terrible. Well, actually, I'm not surprised by that too much. And I, and I said when we talked about this, what they might struggle with while PG was out. And I think I said, like, I, I was worried about their defense um, just because... You know, outside of Kawhi and Pat Beverly, I, I, like their front court defense ha- has given me some concern basically ever since they put this team together. And I know they got Jamichael Green and, and basically gave themselves, I think, a little bit more flexibility in the front court. But you're still looking at playing guys like Zubach and Harold big minutes. Obviously, Lou Williams playing big minutes. They have a lot of attackable players at that end of the floor. So that doesn't shock me too much. Um, and I think they will be a lot better when Paul George comes back. And I think also, you know, we saw Kawhi Leonard during the regular season last year. He kind of puts things on cruise control at the defensive end during the regular season. Um, and offensively, he's just been an absolute hurricane. So Kawhi Leonard looks like the best player in the world, as he did throughout the playoffs. Yeah. Anyway, this is quite a tangent. So uh, DeJounte Murray extension, we think that that has a chance to be a bargain. Jalen Brown, I'm a little bit more skeptical about, although I actually think he's looked pretty good to start the season as well. We don't really have a set structure for this pod uh, just because there is so much going on and so many potentially interesting storylines. So why don't we just bounce around and talk about some stuff that's caught our eye and um, things that have interested us, trends and teams and players in the first week of the season. So... I feel like a good place to start would be with two teams who are seemingly moving in opposite directions and surprising for entirely different reasons. Uh, And those two teams are the Warriors and the Suns. So I, I think, you know, we talked a lot about the Warriors and where they might struggle. I feel like they've struggled in all the ways that we expected them to struggle. But those struggles have been magnified uh, to an extent that I don't think I could have seen coming. The extent to which they just got beaten down by the thunder of all teams. Um, you know, the Clipper loss on opening night didn't shock me necessarily. Maybe the extent of that beatdown shocked me. But by the end of that Thunder game, I was just a little bit, I don't want to say like depressed, but like kind of dispirited watching this once great juggernaut brought so low. And I felt bad. I felt bad for Steph and Draymond because they really do not have enough help. And, um, you know, I think we speculated about the kind of season that Steph might have given the offensive load that we knew he was going to have to carry. I don't know that I fully reckoned with the fact that teams were just going to be able to blitz him virtually consequence-free because there is so little scoring talent around him. 
and also like not that much playmaking ability and like especially when Draymond's not on the floor or at least not involved in a screening action with Steph so often it's like he's getting trapped and he's throwing the ball to like a rolling big man in the middle of the floor and that big man is fumbling it or you know if you're Marquise Chris passing out of an open dunk so that you can get a corner three for Glenn Robinson the third uh, or just sort of dithering with the ball and it gets stuck and you end up with a reset I mean in the first game against the Clippers Draymond had four pull-up jumpers, which he shot 29 pull-up jumpers all of last season. Like, that is not an ideal outcome for your offense. Um, They're really struggling with that. And we can talk about, you know, the game against the Pelicans last night where they seemingly got things back on track. But uh, what are your feelings on the Warriors so far and and how bad they've looked? It's not surprising to me. Okay, yeah, I guess they didn't expect them to get drilled the way they did by OKC. But, like, you talked about them not having a lot of scoring talent and playmaking talent. They don't have a lot of NBA talent, period. Like, with Cleo, and it sounds like he's going to be out for the whole year, their fourth and fifth best players are Kevon Looney and Willie Cauley-Stein, two centers, and they're both both hurt. (laughs) So you're looking at Steph Curry, Draymond Green, D'Angelo Russell, and then a drop-off where, like, their, their fourth best player healthy right now is barely an NBA rotation talent. Like, that's how dire things are. And so, yes, Steph is a, the type of transcendent talent that can, you know, hilariously lift a team's floor. But, man, you need some semblance of depth around that, you know, quote-unquote big three. And they have none, none whatsoever. So I'm not that surprised that they look outclassed. You know, two out of three nights that they played, or yeah, two out of three, they're one and two, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's not that surprising to me. Again, I, I didn't expect them to get drilled the way they did by the Thunder, but them in general looking pretty incompetent shouldn't surprise people when you look at the talent at their disposal outside of Steph, Trey, and D'Angelo. And I'll also add too, like it, that Thunder game, it almost looked like, it almost looked like they were like mailing it. I, I don't know how to explain it. it. Well, I think for most teams, once you get down by 30 points, you tend to mail it in. I mean, I mean, when D'Angelo the game was still within, run right, that early was, in the third quarter, right, in that but game. that was like the game was already over. I mean, early on, it just mm. looked like they had no interest in being there. You know, they lose the first game of the season and they give up whatever it was, 140 to the Clippers, I think, like something like that. Yeah. And Steve Kerr says that for the game. And look, it, you know, to his credit, it's not like it was hyperbole. I think he was being genuine when he said, this is not a one-off, you know, it's going to be a long year of this kind of stuff. And then the next game, they get drilled by a mad team. And OKC and Draymond again, just being genuine Draymond says we effing suck right now. But I don't know, like just something about watching these media scrums they've done, their body language on the court, I guess other than the Pelicans game, it just seems like at least a little bit they look defeated, you know? And that's such a drastic change from what we've obviously come to expect of the Warriors of the last half decade where it was the opposite. You know, the teams they were playing against looked defeated five minutes into the game. And it goes without saying that their defense has just been a tire fire. Um, and, like, if you think about it, they basically they swapped out Clay Thompson for D'Angelo Russell as their starting two guard. And it is just so jarring, like, the di- the defensive difference between those two guys. Like... Russell is a guy you can't really switch with. You know, the Warriors are not really switching. We, they, this is a team that, in some ways, revolutionized defense with their ability to just switch across every position. They're not really switching a whole lot at all. Uh, Russell is, I mean, he gets roasted at the point of attack. And then often, you know, you have Draymond getting pulled out to the perimeter. And sometimes it'll be Russell, basically, as the guy who is on the back line and needs to provide some resistance as a helper. And he can't do it. Like, whether it's like an awareness thing or he's just too slight, like he is not a physical player. He doesn't play with force at the defensive end of the floor at all. He is one of the worst help defenders that I have seen. And, you know, he he brings a lot to the table. So, like, I'm not going to say that this is an out-and-out disaster right now, but it's a really tough look defensively, him and Steph in the backcourt. And, like, Steph... You know, to go back to what I was saying about how we thought maybe he had a chance to put up some bonkers counting stats this year, like, on top of the fact that he is just having to wear himself out running around off of the ball just to try and find a sliver of daylight to get a shot off, getting double and triple teamed constantly, he's having to expend a ton of energy at the defensive end because, you know, once upon a time, the Warriors were able to pre-switch and scram-switch to get him out of infavorable matchups. And they can't do that anymore. 
like they got to go and bail somebody else out and there's nobody to bail him out like aside from Draymond like who are the plus defenders on this team like you know they until last game we're starting Marquise Chris at center who again like it's not for lack of trying and I, I hope that ultimately he can find uh, an NBA home and find a way to succeed in this league but he just does not have a sense of pick and roll timing it's just like he he's flat-footed he jumps too early he jumps too late he doesn't jump at all he can't he can't do it right now and so I think you know going to Draymond at center which they did last game against the Pelicans I thought was a really nice adjustment that's not going to work against every team in the west but against a Pelicans team that was pretty small up front with I think Brandon Ingram at the four and Jalil Okafor at the five who's not really going to scare you as a post-up guy necessarily that's certainly a, a viable strategy that I think can work against a lot of different teams. So maybe we see more of that. I think certainly once Looney and or Collie Stein is healthy, Chris is going to be out of the rotation. And then maybe they get Alec Burks back. They can start to, you know, shuttle out some of these ineffectual players, but they're still going to have to play bad players. Yeah. And because uh, they have a lot of them, they yeah. have more bad players than good players. That's a problem <laughs> yeah. in the Western conference, especially like I, you just can't survive like that. Like and you the, just look at the teams that they're going to have to play against and like what kind of resistance are they providing on the perimeter none. against against some of the, you know, the top scorers in the league, against LeBron, against Kawhi, against James Harden. Like they they don't have anybody no. to slow those guys down. Literally nobody. The last thing I'll say about the Warriors is that Kendrick Perkins of all people put it perfectly. A very entertaining tweet describing probably what it's like for a team as great as the Warriors to suddenly find themselves on this end of these kind of results. And it was, it's no fun when the rabbits got the gun. <laughs> I mean, sure. It's great. Yeah. I have not heard that expression before, but well, leave it to Kendrick Perkins. Thanks to, Perk. Yeah. Um, all right. So let's look at the flip side. Let's look at the Suns, who I did not expect to be a good team this year. I, don't even know if I expected them to be a run-of-the-mill bad team. I, I expected them to be like probably like a 26 or 27 win team, like a very bad team. And to be the, the kind of Suns team that we've seen in the past where they have some offensive firepower, but they just don't put in the effort defensively. They mail it in on a lot of nights. They are discombobulated. And that just hasn't been the case at all. Obviously, they have that huge win against the Clippers, uh, they blew out the Kings on opening night, and then they go down to the wire with a very good Jazz team last night, and we're a couple of breaks away from winning that game. Like, I've I've watched a lot of these games. Honestly, this doesn't look to me like some small sample size aberration. From a process standpoint, their defense has looked so much better, it's blowing my mind. You know what the Suns look like? The Kings last year? Yes. They, there was like the first seven to ten days of last season. Maybe so you're two, saying they'll be back to looking like trash next year? <laughs> maybe. Um, uh, if they fire Monty Williams randomly after and, and replace him with Luke Walton, maybe. Um, yeah, last year, the first like seven to ten days, two weeks of the season, the Kings, who I and many others expected were going to be the worst team in the West, or at least one of the worst teams in the league, strung together a lot of surprising results. They didn't win every game. They won a couple of surprising games, and they hung tough against good teams. And every indication was that, oh, this is a good team here, hiding in plain sight. But a lot of people just didn't believe it because it was like, well, it's early in the season. This team shouldn't be good. I don't believe it. The Suns are doing that right now. Most people expect them to be a bottom two team in the West, bottom three maybe at best. But you look at these results early on. You mentioned it. They blew out Sacramento on opening night. They beat the Clippers, who are the literal championship favorites. They lost to the Nuggets and Jazz, two legit West contenders. By one point each. By a combined two points. Yeah. And one of those games went to overtime. They have the number three net rating in the league through four games, despite, you know, as tough a schedule as you could ask for in the first week and a half. Again, they're, they look good on both sides of the ball. Monty Williams has them playing very organized. And I remember writing about this when they got Rubio. Obviously, I didn't think it would make them look this good. But... What I was saying at the time is like, if anyone actually watched the Suns play the last couple of years and watched Devin Booker and the legitimate progressions that came along in his game, you could see something there. And the one thing this team lacked, other than just a general amount of NBA talent, was point guard play. They needed someone to literally just be able 
to dribble the ball more than three times in a row as their point guard at the NBA level, make smart reads, provide even average defense at the point of attack, give Devin Booker some time off the ball so he didn't have to carry the offense the way he like. They just kind of needed someone to stabilize things. And Ricky Rubio is probably the perfect point guard for that, right? Like, he's not an all-star. He's not going to give you 30 points. But he really is the ultimate stabilizing point guard because he's going to usually make the right play. He's going to find guys. He's got great vision. He's going to defend the point of attack. And to me, his presence has really stabilized the Suns. And then Baines has given them good minutes. Uh, Kaminsky has given them good minutes. And, you know, we were talking about the Warriors just, like, not having NBA talent. The Suns, for many years, were like that. And guys like Baines and Kaminsky aren't going to light the world on fire. But, you know, when Rubio, Baines, and Kaminsky are taking minutes that used to go to guys who on an average team would be like 10th, 11th, and 12th men, like, that's a pretty big upgrade. I don't have a ton of faith in Kaminsky continuing to be a positive contributor. Um, I, I, like, he, he's shot the ball great uh, and offensively has, you know, been really useful, even just as far as opening up the floor goes. But... To me, he's still pretty helpless on defense, and I just think ultimately that's going to lead to him either being out of the rotation or on the fringes of the rotation. But I think Baines has been great, and he was definitely one of the guys who, when they got him, I mean, it seemed like maybe they were going to buy him out or ship him to another competitive team, but when they started the season with him on the roster, I felt like he was the kind of professional, no-nonsense, physical, strong defender that I, I felt like could raise the floor for that team. And sneakily... I think that, you know, this DeAndre Ayton suspension, which he's appealing, and I guess we'll see what happens with that. But I think that's quietly been a big part of their defensive renaissance because Baines really is this cinder block in the middle of the floor who can also move his feet really well and is extremely intelligent. And one thing that the Suns, I think, have done just really well that they have not done for the past few years is they're applying ball pressure on the perimeter and they're really doing a good job of funneling ball handlers toward the help. And they now have these guys who can actually like who can actually do that. And you mentioned Rubio. Uh, Javon Carter has been a really solid, pesky, on-ball defender. Um, even Tyler Johnson uh, you know, has been solid at just kind of directing the ball handler toward the baseline or toward the help at the rim. Like The process stuff to me has looked very solid. Kelly Oubre, like, I, he's always profiled I guess idealistically as a three and D type of guy I never really saw the so three or the D he, he from actually him, but. showed signs of this after being moved to the Suns last year I just don't think a lot of people were paying attention anymore yeah but I think you know his help instincts I think have looked a lot better uh he's using his hands really well getting deflections um and offensively he's done a really heads up job of cutting um hitting threes like if if he can keep that up I mean they have a serious player on their hands. And, um, you know, it's <laughs> they they gave up half a season of Trevor Ariza to get him. So pretty good piece of business for the Suns there and um, pretty poor piece of business for our friends in Washington. But uh, I, I look, I don't think that the Suns are going to make the playoffs. I don't even know that they're going to be competing for a playoff spot, you know, after the All-Star break necessarily. But... I feel pretty confident in saying, even after only four games, that they are not going to be a pushover this season. Yeah, I I think they can be solid. Like, I think they can win 35 to 40 games. Again, in the West, that's not enough. Mm-hmm. But, like, I, I've seen enough in four games and also seen enough of how bad the East is again that if the Suns were in the East, I would already be saying this is a playoff shoe-in. Like, I'd be convinced. <laughs> yeah, well, they... I mean, people are kind of, or were at least, bigging up the Bulls as a potential playoff entry. I thought they could sneak in as eight. And, I mean, maybe that'll still be the case. The Bulls haven't looked great. They look terrible. But the Suns sure look a whole lot better than the Bulls right now. So, um, I thought that was going to be your segue to talk about the Hawks when you mentioned... Well, yeah, why, why don't we go there? Um, Trey Young has looked like, you know, one of the five best offensive players in basketball through three games. Uh, the Hawks' defense has been surprisingly good, uh, although it's driven, I think, in large part by the fact that their opponents are shooting 23% on wide-open threes. I think it's a little less sustainable than what the Suns' D looks like. I agree. I think they're due for some regression. But let's just talk about Trey for a minute. I mean, this guy is, in his second year, mastering the pick-and-roll like I've rarely seen, honestly. I mean, it's the Steph Curry comparisons of him coming out of college are 
looking kind of not totally insane right now with the way that he is just manipulating defenses, getting to that pull-up jump shot, and also just diming up guys on the roll. Like, he, he has vision, he has craftiness, and I think, you know, last year, the reputation on that jump shot far outpaced the actual results. He didn't actually shoot the three ball particularly well. Uh, so far this season, that has changed, and, you know, we'll see if he can keep that up, but he has just been unbelievable. Yeah, he's a pick-and-roll maestro who can shoot from literally anywhere on the court. He's pulling up from the logo. Like, in in that sense, yeah, the, the obvious comparison is Steph. Not saying he's going to be a two-time MVP, but he's got an incredibly high ceiling because of how special he is on the offensive end. In general, he just looks like there's a, there's like a ferociousness to him that it's like he's playing with this sense of urgency you see guys play with in like March and April in the middle of a playoff race or like in a game seven. Trey Young's usually the smallest guy in the court. Never been a rebounder. He's averaging six rebounds a game through three games. Like he's literally everywhere on the court when you watch the Hawks. He's getting loose balls. He's flying in for rebounds. He's shooting 52% from three while doing things like pulling up from the logo. He's averaging 34 a game. It's a three-game stretch, and maybe if it had happened, you know, this three-game stretch happens in January, It's it seems less impressive because it's yeah. just in the middle of the dog days. And the I think that did happen in January last probably year. Probably right, but because, you know, it's the first three games we've seen of him this season, it seems like he's ready to light the world on fire. Obviously, this level of production isn't sustainable. Given his vision, the way he can run a pick-and-roll, and his range, I don't think a prolific season is unsustainable like I think he's there I think he can be an all-star in the east I think the Hawks have enough talent that they can hang around that really sad east playoff race and especially when you look at the teams I think we both expected would be in the fight for that eight seed like Detroit Indiana Chicago I guess the Pistons have looked somewhat competent given no Blake Griffin and that's been surprising but like the Pacers look terrible the Bulls have been really disappointing through a week and a half and you look at like that kind of mishmash of teams and the Hawks have been the most impressive by far, and Trey Young, among that group of teams, looks like the best talent. And in a race where 37 wins might get you a playoff spot, I'll probably take the team that has like the clear-cut All-Star. And right now, that looks like the Hawks. Yeah. I mean, I'm not, I'm not ready to buy into them just yet, just because I still don't believe in that defense. Although I will say, I, I like what I've seen from DeAndre Hunter at that end of the floor. Uh, I think his defensive upside is really high and he still makes some rookie mistakes obviously but the potential is definitely there and again like I, the the opponent three-point shooting is just unsustainably low and that's going to regress and I think the team as a whole will and Trey Young shooting will probably regress like they're going to experience some pullback at some point but they had a pretty impressive showing against the Sixers last night Trey has been unbelievable like I don't think it's going to happen for them this year but it's hard not to be bullish on their long-term outlook what's up pound the rock listeners just a friendly reminder to rate review and subscribe to pound the rock on itunes soundcloud stitcher spotify or wherever you get your podcasts we'd also encourage you to check out the scores other sports podcasts for major league baseball there's expand the zone for soccer we've got sweeper keeper puck pursuit has you covered for the nhl and the fantasy football podcast with justin boone tackles you guessed it fantasy football And in case you haven't already, please download the Score app, which is available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. What else? What else has caught your eye this this early season? You mentioned the Sixers. I think the Sixers have looked kind of like as predictable as possible in that their defense is elite. Mm -hmm. They're huge, and it's giving teams a lot of matchup problems. And they go through these stretches where their offense just... Looks like it has all of the issues we anticipated. They right. can't shoot. So it's weird because they're undefeated right now. They look good. You know, they look like the contender we all thought they could be. But they also, like, all of the flaws that we worried about with this team have shown despite their 3-0 and start. Well, it's, look, if they get on the open court, that's great. Like, the, the difference between Ben Simmons in transition or semi-transition even when he just manages to get himself a head start uh, when he's in the half court, you know, and him kind of lurking around the dunker spot in those half court sets is, it's just night and day. It, when they get in the half court, it gets gummed up. And I think we knew that that was going to happen. There just isn't 
enough oxygen there and they're going to have to sort it out over the course of the season. And maybe, you know, with repetition, they will figure something out that opens, opens things up a bit, you know, with, with Horford being a connector and spacing the floor a little bit. And um, maybe they develop some dribble handoff chemistry between Embiid and Harris and maybe Richardson. I think there are ways that they can make it work, uh, but it's just tough with, you know, between Simmons and Embiid, those two guys are taking up a lot of space. And, and it's hard to build a functional half-court offense around those two guys. Now, one of those guys individually with four other guys who can space the floor around them, I think that could be a really solid half-court offense. But the two of them on the floor together, I think, makes things pretty tough. So we'll see how that goes. But again, like you, you mentioned how exceptional their defense has been. And we already thought that it was going to be the best defense in the league. And now you add Matisse Thybul into the mix, who has been an immediate you know, impact player on that end of the floor. Matisse Thybul is already getting the toughest assignment yeah, he, on the I, defensive I, end. I, against the Celtics, he closed the game guarding Kemba. And he's looks like he can guard basically every position on the floor, right? He's got wonderful hands. And his recovery instincts are some of the best that I've seen. Like, he, he makes all the rookie mistakes that you would expect. Like, he gambles and gets himself out of position. And it just doesn't matter because he recovers in, like, a blink and will affect your shot from behind or swipe it from you when you least expect it. I mean, I don't know what you do with this Sixers defense, honestly. And and even given the struggles that they're having with their half-court offense, I just don't know how you score enough on them to make it matter. Their size and, and defense is going to give teams trouble all season and into the spring. One, the only other Sixers note I have, and it's on a, uh, a guy who's no longer a Sixer, is J.J. Redick. I like mentioning on the pod sometimes if I have like a conversation in a locker room that's not going to make it in a piece because I just think it'll interest people. So I had really like genuine, awesome, not for him, but awesome moment to to see with J.J. Redick last week. So the Pelicans were in Toronto for the season opener. And I was trying to talk to a bunch of Pelicans about what it's like to kind of be the other team on a banner night where, you know, you're not the champs. You're just in their building and you're watching all this pageantry unfold. And so I was talking to a bunch of different Pelicans about it. And J.J. Redick's on the Pelicans now. So I wanted to ask him about it, knowing full well that he was on one of the teams the Raptors beat in the East playoffs last year, but whatever, still going to ask him. You know, he can answer however he wanted. He predictably looked kind of annoyed mm-hmm. at the question, said he wasn't going to answer it. And then a bunch of other people came over to start doing his post-game scrum. They started asking him whatever questions related to the game. You could tell he was like completely zoned out and not listening. And then he turned back to me, who I wasn't even really in the scrum anymore. And he just like started shaking his head and saying, like, yeah, like, I'm sorry, man, I just can't answer that. And this had been, like, a good, like, 10 to 15 seconds after I had asked. And, like, he was being asked something else now. He was still thinking about he it. He was still thinking about it. And then straight up said, I'm not trying to be a jerk. Like, I know you're doing your job, but, like, I literally cannot talk about it. Like, I can't even think about it right now. It's too hard for me to even think about. And it was just... I guess it shouldn't have been surprising given the way the Sixers lost to the Raptors on a four-bounce buzzer beater to the team that ended up winning the title. But it was it was kind of a refreshing show of honesty, even though he didn't answer the question and, you know, give me the quote yeah. I would have liked. I mean, he kind of answered it without answering exactly. it. Exactly. Right? And I just thought that was really interesting to see how, and I'm sure JJ's not alone, like to see how that moment affected the Sixers, you know, mentally. Like these guys... We're a quarter inch away from going to overtime in a game seven against the team that ended up winning the title. And I'm sure all of those guys think that had that ball rimmed out and they got to overtime, like they could be the champions. And they're right for thinking that way. So yeah, just a really interesting moment with a veteran that, you know, maybe thinking too about how that might have been his best chance to win a title. Yeah. He hasn't won a game since then. Yeah. Worth noting. Yeah. <laughs> True. Uh, the Pelicans are 0-4 despite playing some really close and entertaining games. They just haven't been able to close. And obviously they're without Zion. They're now without Drew Holiday as well. They played without Derek Favors last night. And I think that's also an important caveat to the Warriors win last night is that the Pelicans were severely shorthanded. Alvin Gentry's cursed, man. Just one time in his New Orleans tenure can Alvin Gentry have a full, healthy team like for two weeks. Yeah. um, I don't know. Hopefully they will at some point this season. It just, it gets late early in the Western Conference, right? And I think they might even, have already been mathematically eliminated from playoff <laughs> contention. Like, even an 0-4 start, it just puts you so far behind the eight ball. And I don't know. I, I hope that team gets healthy soon because I was really excited to watch the fully healthy version of that team. And even without Zion, you know, before Holiday went down, I thought they put up a great fight on opening night against the Raptors. 
and I can't remember who they played on their second game, but it was another game where they led for most of the game and just couldn't close it out in the end. And I don't know, they, they continue to have some interesting pieces that I'm enjoying watching. Like Lonzo, I think, you know, despite his limitations, he was one of your breakout players. I just, his basketball IQ makes him really fun to watch. Ingram, I'm not a particularly big fan of Ingram's game, but he's scoring the ball really effectively and shooting it a lot better than I would have expected. So that's an encouraging sign, you know, despite the fact that I still think that he is a bit of a black hole sometimes and is a bit of a ball stopper, not an exceptional defender. He's playing better than I've seen him play in a really long time. So there are a lot of positive signs there. Uh, they just haven't been able to get in the win column. So yeah, prayers up for Alvin Gentry, honestly. You know who else hasn't in, gotten in the win column yet? But there are no positive signs of Sacramento Kings. Yeah, do you, I, I don't really have anything to say about that. No, that's, that that's I, all I wanted to say. Yeah, I mean, Buddy Heald just off to a miserable start after signing that extension. De'Aaron Fox is not... Like the, the way that he was just imposing his will on games last year and just running the ball down opposing teams' throats and, like, shooting the ball really effectively and slinging unbelievable passes with either hand to the corners. Like, I, I just... He hasn't played with that same kind of force, I don't think, this year. He hasn't taken over a game the way that he was doing at points last year. And, uh, you know, I've said many times I felt like he had another leap in him and was potentially going to jump into all-star territory this year. And so far, that prediction is not looking so good. And I, I haven't watched enough of them to say that, like, the coaching change from Dave Yeager to Luke Walden has made any kind of substantive difference. But it's just another one of these Kings things, right? Where you have a really successful expectation-shattering season where there are tangible things that you can point to that the coach did that allowed you to achieve that success. And then you fire him. And the same thing happened with Mike Malone all those years ago, and it just doesn't make any sense. Like, the team cannot stay out of its own way. And again, I, I haven't watched enough of them to, like, lay this at Luke Walton's feet, but I just think it's worth pointing out that when you stumble on a formula for success, maybe, like, ride that out for a little while before shooting yourself in the foot. I just... Um, it's disappointing. And again, it's four games, and maybe they can get back on track, but obviously a really disappointing start for that team. Yeah, you know what? It's weird because they're three and zero, but I've also been somewhat disappointed by the Nuggets. And it's again, it's weird. They're undefeated, but they haven't looked very sharp yet. And maybe yeah, that's unconvincing a, wins, right? For sure. Maybe that's a credit to them in that they don't have to play their best ball to to log wins because they do have a great contending team. But they just haven't looked like the Nuggets team we saw last season yet, despite the wins. And Jokic looks as doughy as ever. And look, he's still putting up. Solid numbers, 17 points, 13 rebounds, 5 assists. But his assists are down. His shooting's down across the board. He's shooting 25% from deep. I'm not really concerned about him because he can look as doughy as he does and still just completely pick apart an opposing defense. But, you know, if there's a team out there that the results are lining up the way you want them to, but maybe the process isn't, and a team to keep an eye on because if they keep playing like this, the losses will start coming. It's the Nuggets. Yeah, I feel like at the start of last year, their offense looked a bit janky. Also, it took a while for them to really start clicking. And uh, maybe that'll be the case again this year. I mean, it's surprising because you expect these teams that have continuity to really have some early season success against the rest of the league that has been turned over so radically. And, you know, they're playing against all these teams that are maybe still trying to figure themselves out. So to see a team like the Nuggets uh, scuffle offensively the way that they have, um, given how much continuity they have and how familiar those guys are with each other, is a bit surprising. And, and Jokic hasn't been great, frankly. He's gotten himself into foul trouble. He, you know, somewhat similar to Fox, I guess, just hasn't really imposed himself on games the way that he was doing last year. Um, and I, I'm sure that that will change. Uh, I'm not too worried about that team right now. And like you said, the fact that they haven't been playing well and are 3-0 and is probably a good sign as opposed to a bad one. Have you watched any of this Kendrick Nunn fella in Miami? I have. I mean, he is a dynamic offensive player, honestly. Like, he's shifty. He can get to that pull-up jumper. He's It really came out of nowhere, right? He dropped 40 points in their preseason finale to snag a roster spot. And suddenly has like totally superseded Tyler Hero as the rookie extraordinaire on that team. And basically their number one offensive option right now. It's pretty crazy. Undrafted, 24-year-old rookie, averaging 22 points on 52-42-100 shooting. The Heat are, I believe, 2-1 yeah. 
Jimmy Butler hasn't played a minute yet. Mm-hmm. That's a team that, you know, I was talking about the Nuggets, the process not looking good, and then piling wins. The Heat are 2-1, and one, but they've looked pretty good, and they've had dominant stretches within games. I mentioned in our preseason pods about how I think in terms of, like, a team that an opponent just does not want to play on any given night, other than the Clippers when they're healthy this year, I think the Heat are that team because I just think they're grimy. They got dudes who will leave you bruised. That'll take some cheap shots, not condoning it, but that goes into making a team intimidating and and making you not want to play them. And you're going to add Jimmy Butler to this mix. This team is mean. They can probably get it done on both ends. I think they're a they slant a lot more defensively, but you've got Jimmy carrying your offense. They'll be able to put up enough points with that defense that they're going to win a lot of games, and especially in the Eastern Conference. And man, if like, I don't think Nunn's going to average 22 a game on insane efficiency all year, but like... But they don't need him to. Exactly. Like Kendrick Nunn gives you 10 to 15 points on solid efficiency. You're already ahead of where you thought you were going into the season. Right. And secondary scoring is something coming into the season that I think we both felt they really needed. So to have that guy, you know, once Butler comes back, I think it's going to be really beneficial. Uh, I, I'm feeling good about, I mean, look, I don't know if Bam is going to put up the counting stats to win most improved players. I predicted he would, but I'm still feeling good about predicting him to win that award or just to be a breakout player because I think he's looked awesome. Uh, you know, getting a taste of, of being the full-time center I think defensively, he's been fantastic. He did a really solid job on Carl Towns, which you know basically nobody else in the league has been able to do so far this season. Uh, he's passing the ball really well. Uh, his skill set is just like really well-rounded, right? Because he can impose himself physically. He's super strong. He's athletic. Um, but he's also got really nimble feet and great hands and great passing instincts. So I, I love the way that he's playing, and, and I'm looking forward to watching this Heat team when Butler does get back. All right, are you ready for this? So okay. here's where I was going to go next. I was going to say, man, have you watching the Kyrie? How fun has he been? <sighs> Get ready for this, Joe. Just hot off the press while we're recording. ESPN's Jackie McMullen reports, Kyrie's quote-unquote mood swings causing concern for Nets officials. Oh, man. Is Jackie Mack just like on the full-time Kyrie beat at this point? She's been, I don't know. I feel like she's been tracking his every move for the last... Season and change. During the team's preseason trip to China, Irving was apparently uncooperative randomly during a photo shoot when he refused to take off his hat, insisting instead he be digitally edited out of the picture. (laughs) Sorry, the hat be digitally uh, edited out of the picture, not him. On another occasion this summer, Irving reportedly... What hat was he wearing? No clue. Irving reportedly refused to participate in a team initiative involving the collection of biometric data through wearable technology, created an awkward moment for players who were accustomed to the routine. KD's got a quote in there where he says, I look at Kyrie as like an artist. You have to leave him alone. You know what he'll bring to the table every night because he cares so much about the Did game. Did you also see KD's tweet the other day which just said, we are water? Yeah, I didn't know if it was. Uh, he was alluding to the track water on Kanye's new album or if Kyrie Irving had just taken over his account for five seconds. (laughs) I mean, either one of those seems possible, but it definitely seems like those two guys are maybe rubbing off on each other in not the greatest of ways. Wow. So that didn't take long, huh? The NBA. You gotta love it. Man. Um, yeah, I, I, he, he's been fantastic on the court and just like he was last season, right? It, it's a shame that this off court stuff, has to I don't want to say overshadow what he's doing on the court because he really has been brilliant but I do think it's interesting and we can we can leave that behind the scenes stuff alone for now and and maybe pick that up on the next episode when we know a little bit more or have a bit more context but I I I think we talk about Westbrook a lot as a guy who you put him on a team and he almost swallows that team in that, that you know that team sort of just takes on his identity uh, and and like he can't help it. It's, it's the way that he plays. It's his personality on and off the floor. And I, I wonder if Irving is sort of the same because you know John Schumann of NBA.com pointed this out. Like the Nets are passing the ball way less than they did last season, and that's true whether Irving's on the floor or not. It's like the way that he plays. I think there's a trickle down effect. And it affects what everyone around him does. And I don't know how you quantify that. 
Because if you looked at the numbers last season with the Celtics, the, Celt- the Celtics were way better with Irving on the floor. He had an unbelievable statistical season. And by any measure, you know, whether it was what you could see with your eyes or what the data would tell you, he had a tremendously positive impact on that team. And yet, it seems like somehow there is still this pull-down effect um, that I, I don't know how to explain. Because, you know, the Celtics, while on the one hand they were way better with Kyrie on the floor, they also went, I think, like 9-2 and two in the games that he didn't play. So I don't quite know how to explain that, but um, I think it's interesting. And, and I think it's something that's worth monitoring. Yeah, absolutely. It's one thing, you know, last year he was in a contract year and people thought he was going to leave and whatever. And that brings about its own obvious problems. But it's almost more concerning now. He just signed. Exactly. He just, like, this is the team that, first of all, I think it's a little corny that he he was talking like this because he was a New Jersey Nets fan and, like, he had Jersey roots, but... He's, like, all emotional about his connection to the Brooklyn Nets because of, he grew up a Nets fan, whatever. Anyway, leave that aside. This is the team that he has this emotional connection to, that he chose to sign with to get away from the unhappiness, it seemed, you know, that had developed in Boston and the chemistry issues there and whatever. And now a week into the season, there's already these reports, and he's there for, what, at least three years? I don't know, it's the fourth-year uh, player option? Like, I don't know. But he's there long-term. And the Nets have now committed everything to putting this star partnership together when Durant eventually comes back. There's like different levels of concerns. There's the concern of like contract year, oh, this guy's going to leave. But again, I think I think it should be somewhat alarming for Nets fans that the guy that is now really the pillar of where this franchise is going to go for the next few years is already showing reportedly the same concerning off-court signs that seemingly derailed things in his last stop. Yeah, I, I don't really have anything to add to that, and I, I will have to kind of dive into the story and read it and just see what it's about. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know what to make of it at this point in time. I just He's a fascinating NBA figure, I'll say that, and I hope things work out for him in Brooklyn because he is honestly a joy to watch. And, like, when he gets going... There are not many players that you would rather be watching taking heat check threes. But when he when he had that shot at the game winner against Minnesota the night he dropped fifty, was that his debut? Yeah, that was his de- yeah. the Nets debut. And he fell did like almost like a three sixty on his ass and somehow recovered the ball and got off a pretty clean look. Like yeah. maintained a live dribble. It was one of the most incredible recoveries yeah. that I've ever seen. He he fell over with a defender, I believe it was Josh Okoji, draped all over him and managed to get back on his feet with his dribble still alive and intact and then got off a clean look. Like, it would have been actually an unbelievably brilliant move if he'd somehow done that intentionally. But he got a clean look at a game winner. Like, he, he, he's a transcendent talent. Yeah, he, really he is. is so fun to watch. It is a shame that he's a fraudulent flat earther. <laughs> Um, has he been asked to comment on on that any time recently? Like, I wonder if no, because if his I think he like have changed at all. Put it, it to bed at yeah. some point when he was he he gave one of those answers. I think at some point last year where he like said he was gonna stop talking about it, and that like you know people can think different things, and like the whole point of what he was saying is like you shouldn't just accept everything that you're taught because it's like what teachers tell you. I don't know. It was a fraudulent answer for a fraudulent line of thinking. Yeah. Um, you got any other thoughts on the first week of the season? Well, I think should we talk briefly about the team that the Nets played on opening night, the three and O Minnesota Timberwolves? Carl Anthony Towns looks insanely good. Yeah, I mean, the first thing I have to say about Carl Anthony Towns is I don't understand his posture. Like, yeah, he's kind of got like a weird. He's got a bit of a hunchback, and it's so strange because he's such an explosive athlete, and he's so coordinated and clearly gifted. And I find it strange sometimes watching him. Like, it looks like he's lumbering around out there, but he moves unbelievably well. He's shooting the ball unbelievably well. And I actually think defensively, he's looked a lot better to me as, as a guy who's now just being asked to play the five full-time, understands where he needs to be in that drop coverage. I think as, like, a rim protector and a help guy, he's looked pretty solid. And obviously, he is scoring like crazy. His passing has looked more advanced. He's rebounding the hell out of the ball. 
like to me he's been maybe the MVP of the first week of the season. I'd give it to Kawhi still. Fair. Um yeah, you want to talk about a guy who's leveled up in terms of his playmaking. Um but yeah, like Towns has been unbelievable and I think the, the, the Wolves have done a good job a opening the floor up for him a little bit more. He's no longer playing next to like a traditional plotting big man. He's not playing next to Taj Gibson or uh Gorgie Jang like he the uh, the offense is running through him and it's running through him from the high post, you know? Like and that's not to say that they're not posting him up down low at all, but I think those days when he would be jockeying for position down low and have teammates looking him off because either he didn't have good enough post position or those guys weren't confident enough making that entry pass, it's no longer an issue because he's essentially quarterback in the offense from up top and he's looked so good and comfortable in that role and everything is just flowing a little bit easier for the Timberwolves in that regard. And like they haven't played a murderer's row, so I'm not going to get too excited about this 3 and 0 start. They went in Brooklyn and like they beat a Heat team that we were just talking about that's playing pretty well. Yeah, it's solid. I mean, Jimmy Butlerless Heat team and and they beat the Nets in overtime and they beat the Hornets. It's their ne- not their next games in Philly, Battle of the Undefeateds. Yeah, and you know, Embiid has always kind of gotten the best of Towns on the court and on Instagram. So here's what I was going to so. say when you mentioned Towns playing better defense this year. Towns actually started showing improvements on that end last season. You know, like it's something a bunch of people, exactly included, has actually laughed about in that Carl Anthony Towns kind of started trying harder on defense after Joel Embiid <laughs> called, called him out <laughs> for not playing defense. So maybe you maybe it's it going to come full circle Wednesday night and we're just going to get the full Anthony Towns experience. Yeah. We've also gotten the full Andrew Wiggins experience to start the season. And that's not a good thing. So Wiggins has this great fourth quarter to help the Timberwolves pull away from the Heat to go to 3-0. and I think he had like 16 in the fourth quarter. He had a stretch where he went on a personal 11-0 run. It, like, it looked great. He was getting to his spots, nailed a couple mid-range shots. Again, catch-and-shoot threes were money. And if you see those like five minutes, you think, wow, what a star talent. Look how easy it is for that guy. He made a couple defensive plays during that stretch. But then you look at the big picture and you realize that He's off to the worst start in his less than stellar career. He's averaging about 21 points per game. He's also shooting 43% from the field, 23% from three, 72% from the line. And his playmaking has gone from regressing over the years to completely non-existent. He's averaging less than an assist per game and averaging nearly two turnovers per game. Again, that great fourth quarter is part of the whole Andrew Wiggins experience because you'll get these like flashes here and there. You think, oh, there it is. There's the talent that if it can only be unlocked, and yet the larger sample size continues to indicate that it's never going to be unlocked consistently. <sighs> okay, here's the thing that I will say about Andrew Wiggins, and I have said it before. It continues to drive me insane. He just needs to simplify his game. And the thing that I've come to realize is like good things do not happen when he is dribbling the ball. Like if he's putting it on the floor to like attack a closeout, you know, or to to attack in a straight line drive off of the catch, that's one thing. But when he's like dancing with the ball on the perimeter, he is not beating guys off the bounce. Did you see when he spun? He had that spin move where he went from like an open three and ended up giving himself a contested two off a spin and like barely drew front rim. This is repeatedly what happens with him. He, he, he doesn't beat guys off the bounce. He eats the shot clock. And what ends up happening is he just ends up barfing up these long twos. Like he's not working his way to efficient spots on the court. And like... He is athletic. Like, he is a solid finisher at the rim. He just needs to simplify things to the point that he is working off of the ball. When he's shooting threes, they should be catch-and-shoot threes, not off-the-dribble threes. He is one of the worst pull-up jump shooters in the league. Like, just keep it simple, man. Like, I don't understand why he continues to think of himself as this off-the-dribble creator. Like, he isn't that guy. And if he just committed himself, I think, to shooting off of the catch, attacking off of the catch, attacking in a straight line, moving the ball. If, you know, a play isn't available to him, just stop futzing around with the ball. Stop over dribbling. Like, it's not working for him. And I actually think he could still be, like, a valuable player. He just needs to commit, I think, to doing doing the simple things and the things that he is actually good at. 
Right. He could be. Like, could has never been the issue, though, right? It's like, what evidence is there that he will commit to doing those things? Everything is well, getting worse. But it's coaching. Like, uh, is that, it, though? It should be. Like, that's what I'm saying. It's like, if... Look, if you are futzing around, if you're dribbling the ball for more than five seconds and you end up shooting a pull-up jumper like inside the arc, you're sitting down. I think I agree with you, but that's easier for us to say. It shouldn't be, though. I understand he, he's, he's getting got a, a max money, contract. But and he promised Glenn Taylor he would try. Okay? <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, this to me isn't what trying looks like. like no, he, I, might, he might be playing hard, but... But trying to me would look like he's playing actually, stupid. Actually figuring out how to streamline his game to the point that he can be an effective player. Like, and, and the Wolves now have like a lot of good young wing talent too. Josh Okoji looks awesome. You know, Jarrett Culver has I think shown some really nice flashes early on. Like, there is no reason that he should be playing over thirty minutes a game at this point in time if he is not showing a commitment to streamlining his game the way that he needs to. Here's the thing: there are maybe a handful of coaches in the league with the type of clout that could sit their $190 million young player, and Ryan Saunders ain't one of them. And I, I mean, look, I agree with you. I agree with you that he should sit Wiggins down when he does the stupid things you were mentioning on either end. But I'm just saying I think that's easier said than done. Like I, I think there are repercussions, unfortunately, for coaches that do that yeah. with max players when they have to answer to the owners, right? Well, another thing with Wiggins, you were talking about it's one thing if he's putting the ball on the floor to get to the rim. Like, he just doesn't get to the free throw line anymore. So, early in his career, even when he was inefficient, one thing he looked like he was going to be elite at was drawing fouls. Like, he had his first two seasons, 0.42 free throw attempts per field goal attempt. That's practically Lou Williams' range in terms of foul drawing. Then it went down to 0.34, which is, like, not bad. Then it went down to 0.24. That's not good for a guy who's got the ball in his hands as much as Wiggins. So far this season, 0.19. That's atrocious for a guy that has the ball in his hands as much as Wiggins does. He has become a bad three-point shooter. He dribbles himself out of clean looks at threes. He doesn't get to the rim. He doesn't get fouled anymore. He has a very bad shot selection. And he, at best, is an average defender. And I think that's even probably giving him too much credit. It's It's... So concerning for a guy they've committed that much money to. And then again, though, like he'll have those flashes like he had on Sunday when he took over in the fourth quarter against the Heat. Plus the Timberwolves are 3-0. and And I guess so it, it kind of doesn't matter right now. But man, like they have to extract some sort of on-court value from this guy. Yeah. Forget even being worth his max contract. That'll probably never be the case. But they need to extract, extract some sort of positive on-court value right now. They are not. I will say it was really nice to see how his teammates reacted to him going on that run in that game when they pulled away from the heat. Like, that was just a really nice touching moment. And Wiggins will give you those flashes. Like, he had that unbelievable game against the Thunder in one of Ryan Saunders' first games last year when I think he put up 40 and 10 and five assists. He can do that. It's just, I, I don't think he takes the right lessons out of those performances. And that's the thing. Like, those shots that he was taking and hitting down the stretch in that game against the Heat were not great shots. And I... It's nice to see, and it's nice to see like how his teammates mobbed him afterwards, and and you know probably gave him a boost of confidence. But again, I I just think those aren't the lessons necessarily that he needs to be learning right now because I I still think that there is a productive player in there. He just needs to figure out how to access that player. One thing I'll say about the Timberwolves, the last thing I guess, is you know we're talking a couple weeks ago about teams that theoretically might be able to guard the Clippers' ridiculous wing core. Man, the Wolves might be the only team in the league that can actually do it between Covington and Okoji. Like, those guys can lock you down on the wing. They are big, physical, like, have really nice wingspans. They got a solid perimeter defense, and with Towns playing the way that he's playing, I mean... I think the Sixers and Heat could also... Yeah, yeah. so I'm, like, talking about, I guess, the the Western Conference. Um, But, I don't know, man. Like... I, again, I don't want to overreact to this 3-0 start because they haven't played any especially good teams just yet, but I think the Wolves could be a playoff team, and I kind of hope it happens because I just I really want Towns to succeed. I think he's just such a special, singular talent, and to see him wasting away on a lottery team year after year hurts the soul. So I hope they manage to keep this up. 
and I hope Wiggins can adapt in the way that we want him to. And yeah, I hope they continue to be successful. I think that's just about it for me. Yeah, should we, uh, should the we one, leave off there? The one thing I'll throw in, shout out Andrew Marcelino won the little contest we did last week for that copy of the official NBA Entertainment Championship video of the Raptors. That DVD is on its way to Calgary, Alberta, which is where Andrew lives. So thanks again to Andrew and everyone else who took part. A lot of people actually did respond trying to win. I tried to get back to everybody as quickly as I could, letting them know, unfortunately, they didn't win, but everyone had also a lot of good feedback about the pod. So thanks to everyone who took part in that contest, and thank you for all the feedback as well. And with that, we will sign off, and we will talk to you all next week.